again and will be for some time. Our, our text this morning is verses 5 to 13, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 so we can hear the thoughts that lead into our passage. Romans 8, beginning in 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. We need again this morning, Lord, the miracle of the Spirit's presence in our lives to open our minds to understand the Scriptures. And you perform that miracle over and over and over again for your people. So we look forward to it. We ask you, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to open our minds and show us how it is that we walk according to the Spirit. What does that look like in our lives? What is the motivation for this? We ask you now to open our minds and give us a heart to receive all that you have for us. All that's been made possible through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. At this point in the book of, the Ro of Romans, we are in a position that is not unlike that of a criminal who has been unexpectedly released from prison by the stroke of a governor's pen, someone who's received a full pardon that drops all charges against him. He walks out the front gate as a free man with a new set of clothes. He passes police officers on the street, but he doesn't need to hide from them because they've got nothing on him. There's no fine they can give him, no ticket. He can't go back to prison. 
He's totally released from concern about them. He finds a park bench to sit down on. He takes in the fresh air and he says to himself, well, now what? (laughs) That's the position we're in as we come to this passage. Paul begins by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ Jesus, that is, if you are joined to Him by faith, then you are like the prisoner who has been pardoned from the governor. The Lord has justified you. He has counted you righteous, making it unjust to keep you in prison any longer. Now you walk free, clothed with righteousness, free from any need to pay for your crimes. Now you walk past the policeman who is God's law without any fear. Now it has nothing on you because you've been pardoned by God. And this pardon is permanent, as Pastor Dan told us last week. Break whatever laws you might, you will never go back to prison because the lawgiver, God himself, sent his own sinless son to do your time for you on the cross and make you go free with his perfect record. That's the position of the true Christian, which Paul has explained in Romans 1 to 7, summed up in this verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, things being this way, the natural question to ask yourself is, well, now what? Where do I go from here? What is my life to look like with this new freedom that I have, this new unbreakable status of righteousness? The answer is introduced at the end of verse 4. We walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We live in a new way that is informed by and empowered by the Spirit of God who goes with us out of the prison gate. It's very significant that for the entire first seven chapters of Romans, Paul has only mentioned the Holy Spirit four times in seven chapters. Now in this chapter, he mentions the Spirit 22 times. It's like he was waiting for the right moment to draw our attention to the Spirit of God. And now's the time. Once you've understood your no-condemnation status as a believer, the next thing you need to know is that God Himself is with you always in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's presence changes you. His presence brings new spiritual life and ultimately resurrected life. So we're going to see this morning that what we do with our no-condemnation status is that we live in a way that honors the giver of it which is to live according to the Spirit. And it's actually going to take two sermons to explain what that looks like. Today the focus is going to be on how the Spirit makes the difference in our lives. And then next Sunday will be about specifically what we do as a result of that. So let's think through the passage. Start with the first observation, which is that there are two ways to live. 
There are two ways to live. They're introduced in verses 5 and 6. Here's the first way, which Paul says is according to the flesh. 5 and 6. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. To set the mind on the flesh is death. Now, what's he talking about? Well, flesh as we saw earlier in Romans, refers to human existence apart from the transforming power of Christ. It's bodily life not under submission to Jesus. It's to serve your own sinful desires, to obey passions that are the opposite of what God created you for. It's to be a slave to sin. It's to set your mind on or be preoccupied with and controlled by the things of the flesh. It means that what shapes your life, what makes you choose one career over another, or who your friends were going to be, or what you'll spend your money on, is simply what feels right in the moment. What you think is going to give you happiness from the world. And none of it is guided by a desire for Christ, a desire to give Him honor and praise. That's what it means to be in the flesh. Now, as we learn in chapter 7, even those who are in Christ, who are no longer bound under that life, can still be fleshly. Salvation hasn't completely transformed us. That, That awaits for the life to come. Today, there's still that part of you that retains some affinity for the fallen world and the temptations that are here. There is a temptation to live according to the flesh, according to the residual unholy desires that we have. But right here, Paul is speaking of the person who is still dominated and controlled by a mind that is set on the things of the flesh. This is life outside of Christ. That's one way to live. And obviously not the one we should want, because Paul says death is in that way of life. To set the mind on the flesh is death. The wages of sin is death, from chapter 6. Now that's surely a warning about the ultimate death, which is God's condemnation for our sin carried out in hell. Hell is a real thing, and that's not something to take lightly. But there are other deaths along the way to that one. Every time we walk away from God, who is the giver of life, we walk toward death. There's a little death that we experience. Every time we disobey and walk away from God, it's a, it's a regret, it's a pang of guilt, it's a dissatisfaction, it's a consequence. And you feel that. There's, there's a little something that gets removed from you, that gets taken away from you as you walk away from God. Unless your heart's become so hard that you no longer feel it. But there's another way to live. It is to live according to the Spirit. And that's also in verses 5 and 6. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the Spirit To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. What a contrast. Here's something that doesn't take away from you. Here's something that doesn't kill you slowly, moment by moment. It's when what guides and empowers your life is the Spirit of God. 
It's like the contrast of Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. There's a contrast there. Getting drunk, and I think Paul would have added getting high in our Colorado days. (laughs) That is debauchery, he says. That's when a substance guides you and directs your behavior. But being filled with the Spirit is when the Spirit guides you and directs your behavior, when the Spirit is in control. To set your mind on the things of the Spirit is to be preoccupied with and directed by and make your life decisions based on all that flows to us from God through the Spirit. If that's where your mind is, then you're not going to live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The Spirit's going to change your life. Now, what are those things of the Spirit that we're to set our minds on, that we may walk according to the Spirit? Well, the other place we see that phrase, the things of the Spirit, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verses 12 to 14, where the things of the Spirit of God correspond to the things freely given us by God. The things of the Spirit are those realities and promises that God has given us freely through Jesus Christ. These are the things of the Spirit because as Jesus said of the Spirit in John 16, 14, He will glorify me for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit wants us to see all the things that are freely given to us by God. He wants us to see Jesus in a new light. He wants us to see everything that is promised to us and everything that is true of us as believers. He is pointing to Jesus. He wants Jesus to be glorified in us. And so we'll we'll see things. We'll see things of the Spirit. Like in chapter 8, as we get here a few weeks from now, verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. There's a thing of the Spirit. He wants to say to you, brother and sister, you're a child of God. You have a father, not an absent one, one who is the good kind, the one who is the perfect kind, the one who is a provider, a protector, an encourager, a trainer. That's who you are. He's your father. You're his child. That's a thing of the Spirit. That's a thing freely given to us by God. And He will show us these things. That's The things of the Spirit are the things that the believer sets his mind on, or at least where we should set our mind. This passage will give us fresh motivation to set our minds there because there's a promise here. Paul says the result of setting our minds on the things of the Spirit is life and peace. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Surely that refers to the end point, to the final destination for followers of Jesus, which is the eternal life in security and well-being of a new heaven and earth. Surely that is on the road of setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. But there's a down payment of life and peace here now. There's a peace that passes understanding that Paul talks about in Philippians 4 
as we give him all our anxieties and we pray with thanksgiving. There's a peace that comes in now. There's life, there's satisfaction, there's joy in doing the good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, as Ephesians 2.10 talks about. To live according to the Spirit is the way to live. It's the only way to live, really, the only thing that will really satisfy our souls in the here and now. To go back to the prison illustration that I started with, it's like the reason you were in prison is because you were living according to the flesh. So that life was going nowhere. That life apart from Jesus Christ was going nowhere. But now in Christ, you are released from that prison to start a new life, a life guided by the Spirit of God. And that is truly life. That one takes you where you want to be. But let's go a little deeper into these two ways to live because Paul has more to say about them. He wants us to know that living according to the Spirit is a miracle that only God can produce in you. Living according to the Spirit is a miracle that only God can produce in you. That's the teaching of verses 7 to 11. Let me read 7 and 8 again because this explains the true situation of the person who doesn't know Christ. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Note that word, hostile. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, think carefully about what Paul is saying there. He's not saying that apart from a relationship with Jesus that you're just ignorant of God. He's not saying that you're just indifferent or even that you're disappointed or mildly upset with him. He's saying you are hostile. That means unfriendly, antagonistic, combative. He says that is your governing disposition toward God apart from Christ. Now, that may rub us the wrong way to hear that. Because we know lots of people who don't know Christ who are nice people. Maybe even spiritual people. Maybe you're one yourself. And the word hostile doesn't seem to describe that experience. But think of this illustration. Soldiers in a rebel army may be very committed to one another. Very friendly, very supportive, very hardworking, and even protective of you. But if that army is set against the rightful ruler of the land, the ruler is not going to see those attributes as friendly because they're all carried out in service of a cause that's opposed to him. So it is with a person's relationship with God. Outwardly, one can be very easy to get along with, make people laugh, be the first one to reach out to the hurting. But if all of that is in service of the flesh and not God, then it is hostility towards God. James 4.4 says, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Why? Because of Romans chapter 1, which says that we know God is there, we know we're accountable to Him, but we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We cover up our rebellion with a veneer of morality, but the rebellion is still there, and God knows it. We are hostile apart from Christ. We're enemies. But now it gets even worse than that. Here's more to the story. Because Paul says that someone whose mind is set on the flesh, whose life is directed by self and not by God, cannot escape that condition and cannot please God. He says the mind set on the flesh does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That means apart from Christ, you have no natural ability to choose obedience to God. You can't do it. And if you can't obey God, then all you can do is sin. And sin displeases God. If you are in bondage to sin, you cannot please God. You can't even submit to the command, repent and believe in the gospel, because naturally that is not something you will ever want to do. Why? Because the control center of your life is the mind, and your mind is set on the things of the flesh, not on the things of the spirit, which lead to life and peace. It's as Paul said in Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Not just sickly, not just disabled, but dead. Unresponsive, unable to submit to God's law, unable to please God, and therefore unable to do anything to save yourself. That's a shocking statement. And many people are not comfortable with that. We would like to think that we're better than that. That surely I can please God. Surely I can exercise my free will and do what it takes to qualify for eternal life. But Paul says, no, you can't. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Looking back to that period of life, that realm of being under, of, under our own devices, there's nothing good there, he says. The first part of seeing that we need a Savior is coming to terms with this reality that we can do nothing to save ourselves. Our will is not truly free if what we will is always sin. God has to change our will in order to save us. And that is the miracle of conversion. That is the miracle of coming to Christ in faith because what God actually does is change our will. <laughs> what He actually does is take away that hostility and turn it into love. He changes the control center of our lives from the flesh to the Spirit. That's what verses 9 and 10 are about. Paul says to believers, you, however, are not in the flesh, 
but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, there's a lot in that paragraph, but here's the main thing to pull out of it. The fundamental reality for a true Christian is that the Spirit of God dwells in you. The very presence of God dwells in you. He has taken up residence within you, and that changes everything. You are in the Spirit, meaning the Spirit is your new environment, your new control center, the new driving force in your life, and He will make you have a thirst for the things of the Spirit. He will make you able to submit to God's law. He will make you able to please God. Now, it's true that once you experience the miracle of conversion, you're still fleshly, as Paul puts it in Romans 7.14, it means you still have indwelling sin, you have some affinity for the temptations of this life, but though you are of the flesh, or fleshly, you are no longer in the flesh. You are no longer the sin-enslaved you that was put to death on the cross when Jesus was put to death. That's the mystical union that believers have with Christ. Even before you were born, the Lord looked ahead into our present and He saw the sins of His people and He laid them on His Son, Jesus Christ. He dealt with them there and that old sin-enslaved you was killed when Jesus was killed. All that remained was for the day to come when He would send His Spirit to dwell within us and become that regenerating new driving force in our lives the one who would give us life, the one who would apply the, the rescue of the cross to our souls in real time. The Spirit made Christ beautiful to us and made the gospel compelling. It changed our will. It's nothing less than Christ Himself coming to dwell in us by His Spirit because He's called here the Spirit of Christ. And Paul says, Christ is in you. You might say that for the believer, there's a sign over your head that says, under new management. Because it is. Yeah, you still have sin. There's a law or a principle of sin that dwells in your members, Paul said in chapter 7. But it has been removed from the control center. The Spirit has moved in, and He is the one who has the power to change. Now, as we're going to see next week, there is a part of that change that depends on the part that we play. There are some things the Spirit just does that we have nothing to do with it, and there are things that we do in response, dependent upon the Spirit. And that will determine, to a great extent, how we experience the change. But make no mistake, it is the Spirit who's at the work. It is the miracle of God that moves us from one way of life to another. Salvation isn't ultimately the result of you changing your mind one day, though you did change your mind. It's about God changing your mind and overcoming your hostility. 
It's God deciding to change your fundamental condition from slave to sin and enemy of God to freed from sin and friend of God. It's God applying righteousness to you through the work of Jesus Christ and beginning a transformation process by His Spirit where you become more and more righteous in the way you actually live. That's the miracle that God does in conversion. And the result is life. Verse 11 tells us, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now that is surely speaking about your future resurrection. (laughs) If God raised Jesus from the dead by the Spirit, which He did, then He will also raise you from the dead by the same Spirit who dwells in you. Someone's gone before you already. This has happened already. (laughs) Resurrection has happened to one person, Jesus Christ. But that's the proof it's going to happen to you by the Spirit that dwells within you now. If the Spirit is resonant within you, which He is if you're a believer, then you are guaranteed to be raised again just like Jesus was. Same Spirit. The Spirit that dwells in you. But, you know, there's a present-day promise also of life to your mortal bodies as they are now. Meaning new spiritual life that leads to decisions and actions based on setting your mind on the Spirit. Because Paul said in Ephesians 2.5, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Past tense. It has already happened. You have already been made alive together with Christ to whom you are joined by faith. There's a life right now, not only a resurrection life, though there is that, but even now there's something that's changed in you. There was deadness. Now there's life. Now there's spiritual life. As Paul said in chapter 6, you must consider yourselves alive to God. There's a new appetite there for God. There's a new openness. There's a relationship with Him that is vital and living and is changing you. It's an inner life. It's this new spiritual activity and desire in the believer that's going to lead to living according to the Spirit. Instead of choosing sin, which kills us little by little in some way, we choose God's law. We choose obedience by which we experience many blessings, things that resonate with our hearts, things that satisfy, things that are life to us. And that brings us to the last point, which is about what that looks like day by day. The question is, what does it look like to live according to the Spirit? Well, we're only going to introduce that this morning and get to the details next week. But listen again to what verses 12 to 13 say about this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So then, or... Therefore, based on what I've just said, here's where I'm going with this, Paul says. 
Here's what I've been leading up to. We are debtors who by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. This is what we call sanctification, which is that we become more and more free from sin and more and more like Jesus Christ in our character, in our life. You see, God's desire for us, His goal in giving us the Spirit, His goal in the no condemnation, it's not only to save us from condemnation and judgment, it's to make us different people who are zealous to live holy lives. Now, there's an important word here we need to understand if we're going to do this right. Before talking about putting to death the deeds of the body, putting to death our sins, Paul describes the motivation for doing it. He says, we are debtors. We are debtors. Okay, what does he mean by that? That doesn't sound good (laughs) after all the talk that we've had about freedom in chapter 6 and 7, because we learned that we are set free from sin in chapter 6, verse 7. We learned that we are not under the law, but under grace, 6.15. We have the free gift of God, which is eternal life, 6.23. We are released from the law, which held us captive, 7.6. The spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, 8, verse 2. That's all good stuff. That's freedom talk. And now he says, we are debtors. Hmm. That doesn't sound like freedom. (laughs) That sounds like debt. (laughs) Like obligation, like a sum that needs to be repaid. So who are we in debt to and what do we owe? We need help to understand this. Well, one thing we know for sure, we don't owe the old sin-enslaved self anything. We are debtors not to the flesh, Paul says. The mind set on the things of the flesh never produced anything good in you. It was the very cause of all your troubles. You don't have any unfinished business with sin. So today, you may still be tempted by something, but there's no reason to go back there. Are you tempted by drugs, by immoral relationships, by seeking a reputation for yourself, by putting security in money, by overindulgence in entertainment? There's no reason to serve any of those things. They don't need you, and you don't need them. You're not a debtor to the flesh. To live according to the flesh. So how are we debtors? Well, Paul never actually finishes that thought directly. He doesn't say, we are debtors not to the flesh, but we are debtors to this. He just leaves it open-ended as if he's already said enough that we should be able to figure it out. So that leaves us seeking for words to put to it, and there's a lot of different concepts that have been put forward. But I think we can complete Paul's thought this way. The grace and mercy of God that's been just described for us in the previous verses places on us an obligation of love and gratitude to the Lord. That's the obligation. That's the debt. Love and gratitude. Fulfilling that obligation looks like putting to death the deeds of the body. It looks like 
putting away our sin and living holy lives, but its motivation is the love and gratitude to love and mercy from God. See, we have this amazing picture of grace and mercy of God to believers that we just heard about. We were hostile. We were enemies of God, and we were unable to do anything about it. We never would have chose Him. We would have gone straight to hell, and happily so. And then He came in, and He resided there, and He changed our mind, changed our will, gave us new appetites, made us see Christ as beautiful, made us believe the gospel and go in that new direction and see, see for the first time beauty and life and hope. And he did all that by first sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to die on a cross for our sins, bearing our guilt and giving us his righteousness in exchange and then giving us the promise of eternal life. And we did not deserve any of that. Not one thing. So then, brothers... We are debtors to that, that amazing love and mercy and grace that's been shown to us. That is amazing. It calls for something from us, not as a way of repaying anything, but as a response of gratitude, which will look like, as it works out, putting to death the deeds of the body, which we'll look at next week. Now, we can go wrong in our thinking here. We can retreat back into legalism. We can think that somehow this indebtedness means we are paying God back for saving us. Like there's a certain quantity of righteous living that we need to achieve in order for Him to think, okay, that's good enough. Now I know that it was worth sending my son to the cross because I see all the change that it's produced in you. Okay, I'm satisfied now. We could think that way, but that's going back under the law. That's burdensome. That's trying to pay back a debt by our merit. If you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, great war movie, um, this kind of thinking is really powerfully displayed, actually, this idea of having to pay it off because somebody did something for you. The film is about a group of soldiers who go behind enemy lines in World War II Germany. And their, their mission is to go and find this private James Ryan, whose three other brothers have already been killed in the war. He's the last one. And so the military wants to rescue him, wants to get him out of enemy lines and bring him back home safely so his parents don't lose all four sons. Well, I hope this isn't a spoiler for anyone. <laughs> but they do save Private Ryan, but they all die in the process. The last man who dies is Captain Miller, whose dying words to Ryan were, James, earn this. The movie ends with Private Ryan, now an old man, at the gravesite of Captain Miller. And he's obviously emotional and troubled. And he says this over the grave, Every day I think of what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best that I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I've earned what all of you have done for me. 
Is that the kind of debtor that we are to the Lord? Are we earning what Jesus did on the cross when he died for our sins? Absolutely not. We can't repay our debt to God. Salvation is a free gift. You don't pay for a gift. But what do you do with a gift? You respond with gratitude. You respond with the debt that's owed to love and mercy. For example, a person who's saved from drowning does not work to repay his rescuer. He will take every chance he gets to honor him. He will say many times, I owe you my life. He will show up at a banquet in his honor. He will send cards and letters. He'll keep the memory of his deeds fresh in the minds of his friends and his family, but he won't be repaying it. It's just that that act of selflessness changed him. So it will be with believers. We will honor Jesus Christ with our lives. We will tell him how grateful we are for saving us. We will tell others what he has done. We will live in the freedom that he bought for us, which is not freedom to sin, but freedom not to. That is what the debt of love and mercy and sacrifice looks like. It's not payback. It's deeds rooted in gratitude and love that are the appropriate way to honor what Jesus did. People who feel that gratitude will, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. It will change how you live. And if we try to do that without gratitude... If you try to do that because you're trying to pay God back or earn something, you will carry a miserable burden all your life like Private James Ryan. But to do it because you want to honor Jesus and all that the Spirit of God has shown you about Him, it will be a joy. And we'll learn more about how to do that next week. Let me just close with this. We need this passage because after hearing about all of our freedoms in Christ, we might be tempted to think God doesn't care that much about how we live. That freedom means I don't need to think that much about sin. I don't need to try hard to be holy. That that's legalism, to be diligent, to obey God's commands in the Bible. Well, it is legalism to do those things in an attempt to pay God back or in a way to qualify for His grace. But it is not legalism to put to death the deeds of the body as a grateful response to Christ's sacrifice. That honors Him. That's what He wanted us to do. That's why He gave us the Spirit, to create that response. He wants us to be motivated by the debt of love and gratitude not payment. And that's the only kind of motivation that will last. So, as we do that, as we seek Him and show Him our gratefulness, instead of a whole bunch of little deaths every time we sin, there will be a whole bunch of moments of life where we experience the blessing and goodness of God in communion with Him. May there be a lot of times like that in the coming week for all of us.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for freeing us from the debt of our sin, which could only be paid for on a cross by Jesus, and leaving us with only the debt of gratitude to love and mercy. May we feel it, Lord. May we feel the freedom of that that actually changes us, makes us joyful, makes us obey, the, may, obey you from the heart. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.